Well, we jumped back into our study of the book of Romans last week as we dug into the first two verses of Romans chapter 12 that so clearly signals a massive turning point in this great book by the word that you find in the very first verse there of Romans chapter 1, therefore, therefore. Because what Paul is saying is after 11 chapters of God and sin and salvation and the Holy Spirit and God's sovereignty over all nations. Now, in light of all that, live like this. Live like this. It's obvious from Paul's wording and his approach that he believes there is a correct as well as an absolutely incorrect response to all of this. And he wants you to know, if this has really gripped you, if you've really begun to, to understand and get a hold of all that I've tried to unpack in all of its glory, just sitting there and soaking in it is not enough. There's a place for that, but it cannot be the end. It cannot be the end. He's saying, live like this. And so even though our Live Out Loud sermon series has come to an end, I hope you can see that Romans chapter 12, as we jump back into the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12 is still a great chapter for helping us to continue to think more and to get some traction on what would it look like for each one of us as as believers at Grace Fellowship to have courage to stand. A confidence to speak up and a heart that's willing to sacrifice to see more people come to Christ. And so right here in verse 3 is where it gets really exciting. I'm going to pick it up in Romans 12 starting with verse 3 and I'm going to stay here for two weeks. Romans 12 verses 3 to 8. I'm going to give us two weeks on this. Because here's what I think is going on. Paul tells us in this passage we're going to dig into. And I think some of you are going to see it maybe for the very first time ever. And it's going to help you. If you've been saying, but wait a minute, how could I ever be this kind of person? I don't have a lot of courage. I don't have a lot of confidence. And I I don't have a heart to sacrifice. He's going to tell us, God never expected you to make an impact on the people around you in your own strength or with your own limited human resources. Say, thank you, Lord. He's going to tell us that God has given every single believer, not just some, every single believer, some supernatural spiritual gifts, gifts that you can use in making an impact on the people Around you. See, here's what you need to understand that maybe some of you don't realize. When God saves you, the Holy Spirit starts living in you. And when the Holy Spirit sets up housekeeping in you, He never shows up empty handed. He comes bringing gifts, spiritual gifts that are yours. That's what we're going to dig into in these next two Sundays. 
spiritual gifts that are yours, not just for certain people, but every single believer. If you're here and you're born again, if you're here and you're, you're a Christ follower, you're here and you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, you are alive spiritually. Then you have some spiritual gifts, whether you know it or not. So now that I hope I've got you leaning forward thinking, whoa, yeah. Now let's read the passage. Romans 12, beginning of verse 1. Oh, I hope you have a what? Just shake it. We had not done that in a while. Shake it to the glory of God. Yeah. Shake your little phone if that's what you're looking at. So sad. (laughs) I like real Bibles. I like real Bibles still. But anyway, just so you got something where you can see God's word. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your Mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace that is given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. And individually, members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches, in teaching. He who exhorts, in exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Now here's all I want to do today. Because as I said, I'm going to take two weeks for these verses All I want to do today is to lay some groundwork. I want to lay some groundwork before we dive into any of the specifics about different gifts and what it would look like and who has what. And the way I want to do this is I simply want, I want to point out two critical pillars that Paul fastens in place. Two critical pillars that he fastens in place before he ever begins to unpack in any detail about specific gifts. Because here's the deal, folks, and this is critical. You don't get to use these gifts any way you want. Just fast and loose for your own glory. Oh, no, 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 no. Just like anything, just like anything powerful and spiritual gifts are. There's power there. The designer, God, gives us some instructions and warnings as to how to use and not misuse these spiritual gifts. Ready? Here's the first thing. 
I see Paul fastening in place. The first critical pillar that he says, get this in place before you get jazzed about any specific gift. Number one, never lose sight of your relative unimportance in the bigger scheme of God's kingdom. Even as you get excited about discovering how he may have uniquely gifted you to make an impact on other people for eternity. That is very exciting. But don't lose sight. Even as you begin to sense and discover and get excited about how he may have gifted you, one of the best and most important things you should never get over is God doesn't need you. And he's not hamstrung by the lack of you. And when you fade off the scene, he won't say, oh, what's gonna, the kingdom won't totter and shake for a while till we find another you. No. No. And yet, that doesn't mean just lay back and say, well, I guess it doesn't matter. There's so many things in the Bible where we have to hold to the biblical tension of two truths. You do need to get excited and realize he wants to use you. He's designed to use you. He's given you some gifts, but don't ever... Lose sight of the fact of your relative unimportance in the bigger scheme of things. See, there's a danger, folks, that spiritual gifts could become all about you and me. And how amazing it is what we can do now. Because, let's be honest, it's pretty heady stuff, isn't it? When you start to connect the dots and you begin to realize... Oh, something I said, something I did, a place where I served, I stepped in and I see fruit. I see, I see lives being changed. And, and here's the deal, not just changed, changed for eternity. Woo, pretty heady stuff. So now, drink it in with me again slowly. What Paul wants to fasten down securely that we so desperately need on a regular basis as sinful human beings. Ready? Verse 3. Verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You say, what's the point, Brad? Well, here it is. Paul wants you to stay out of two of the biggest ditches Christians fall into. That will render you useless for the kingdom of God. There's two. There's two in this verse. Do you know what I'm talking about? Here's the first. I am so great. Yeah. <laughs> Got my spiritual gifts. Bam. Bam, bam, bam. But there's another ditch that isn't as obvious at a at a at a superficial reading. You know what the other one is? I am so terrible. I barely made it into the kingdom of God. I think I'm saved. I'm going to miss hell, but there's no way he can use me. I'm not like everybody else. I am so bad. I am so bad. I'm still so bad. Two ditches. 
Both are debilitating and self-consuming thoughts that will render you useless when it comes to making an impact on other people. So Paul wants to set up guardrails to keep you out of these two ditches. Now, maybe if you're thinking and tracking with me, and I hope a bunch of you are, you're saying, Brad, I think I see the first ditch not to think more highly than he ought. Got it. Where are you getting the second ditch? I am so terrible. Well, look at verse 3 again. And let me point out something for you. In verse 3, not to think more highly than he ought, but to think. If you got the New King James, what's the next word? Soberly. Folks, soberly doesn't mean sad. In the original language, which it was Greek, Koine Greek, that word soberly means accurately. Don't think more highly than you ought, but think accurately. See, here's what Paul's saying. If you truly believe the gospel and all of its implications, which I've been unpacking now for 11 chapters, and let's quickly give a definition on the gospel because I'm going to say it a lot. The gospel is simply shorthand for we are all by birth, from birth, Sinners separated from a holy God with no hope of bridging that gap on our own. And you could never earn it or work or keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments were given to show you how bad you are. Enter Jesus. God himself gives his son who takes on flesh and fully keeps the Ten Commandments in a way we never could have. And then gave his life in payment for sins. Shed his blood. Should have been our punishment. Should have been our suffering. He took it. In our place so that now anyone who puts their trust in Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, plus what? Nothing is forgiven forever, is sealed with the Holy Spirit, is given a robe of righteousness, is is adopted into the family as a son or daughter of God. No condemnation. You're reconciled. You're ransomed. You're redeemed. That's the gospel. So I'm going to keep using that. When you truly understand the gospel in all of its implications as he's tried to unpack it for 11 chapters now, it'll keep you out of both of these ditches. Because what do both these ditches share in common? I'm so great. I am so terrible. You're focused on me. Self, you. And so both are quite debilitating. Because both mean you're not paying enough attention. You are not paying enough attention to the glories and delightfulness of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done. Who he is and what he's done. Who he is and what he's done. You are focused too much on who you are and what you've done. Or how bad you are and what you've done that makes you so different than everybody else. So you just don't think he could ever or would ever use you. Both get it wrong. Both are ditches that will hang you up. And so here's what Paul wants you to understand before he ever drills down into any of the specifics about spiritual gifts. A correct understanding of the gospel, as he's explained it for 11 chapters, will keep you from feeling superior And will keep you from feeling inferior. Both. Because both render you useless. And this is where, listen to me, in a day where people struggle with identity and worth 
and dignity and a sense of purpose where more and more we're having people raised in homes where the people who are supposed to care for you are abusing you. More and more and more people are struggling with identity and worth and dignity. Listen to me. Never mind public school curriculum on self-esteem. It does not seem to have worked except for causing kids to take a handgun and shoot everybody. The gospel will do What curriculum on self-esteem could never do, folks, this is where the gospel and Christianity can make such a difference in the way you assess yourself. Track with me. Because the gospel sticks a knife. It sticks a knife into both problems. I am so great and I am so terrible. You say, how so, Brad? How does it do that? It sticks a knife into both, folks, and points you back to your savior. I know it sounds contradictory, but here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel, and see it started in Romans 1, 2, and 3. It is such bad news, right? Romans 1, 2, and 3 are dark. It's sin, 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 sin. No one seeks after God. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. Woo. The gospel lays you lower than you would ever see yourself and shows you to be worse than you would ever consider you are. It's a shock to most people. And at that same moment, while you're stabbed and wounded, lying lower than you would ever be considering yourself, he also says, yet you are loved and accepted Because of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for you that you could never do for yourself. It's not based on you. It's based on him and he doesn't change. And so it can never be undone. And now you can't keep God from loving you. You can't stop it. Say, thank you, Lord. That's the gospel. You're worse than you ever would have imagined. At the very same moment, the gospel brings both these things to light. You're more loved and accepted. You're lifted up and caused to rejoice more than you could have ever dared hope. The gospel does both. And so some of you, perhaps you've avoided this I am so great ditch and you didn't recognize you are not pleasing God when you wallow in this ditch. This also misses it. Both are forms of unbelief. He sets up a guardrail to try to keep us out of both of these ditches. See, the gospel brings you the worst news ever about yourself. At the same time, brings you the best news you could ever hope for. That's why Romans chapter 8 as long as there's been a Romans chapter 8, has been one of the most loved, memorized, meditated on, delighted in chapters in all the Bible because Romans 1, 2, and 3 was so dark. And then Romans 4 and 5, he gives us justification by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, not what you do, not keeping the Ten Commandments. And if that grips you and you get a hold of that, oh my goodness, Romans 8 begins to cause you to soar in ways you could have never imagined Let's soar together. Let's go there. Romans 8. Romans 8. Oh, I wish I could read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, we won't. But let's just at least get, the, get that thing off the ground and soar a little bit. 
I'm going to jump in at verse 31. Now, you got to appreciate this is happening after he's told you how bad you are. There was no hope for you. You don't deserve heaven. You deserve hell. You deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus took that wrath, stood in your place, kept the law. You're redeemed and loved and adopted and accepted based on Jesus. And he never changes. It's done. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things? All this that he's been explaining. What then shall we say to these things? If God is, say it, for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for Saul. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who's even at the right hand of the Father and also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril or nakedness, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. If you got New King James, say that next word with me. Yet, that was weak, say it again. Yet, yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh my goodness. Can you see how if that grips you, There's no place for I am so great, but there's also no place. It's most inappropriate. It's just eaten up with unbelief for I am so terrible. It's I am so loved. I don't deserve it, but I am so loved. Oh, my goodness. Every believer regardless of how those closest to you are treating you, those that work with you are treating you, those in the neighborhood are treating you, those in your small group or church are treating you, you should live moment by moment with an awareness and an overwhelmingness, I think I just made that up, of how loved you are. I am so loved. I am so loved. And it only becomes rich and special when you realize how bad you are and you don't deserve it, but I am so loved. I am so loved. And when that grips you, folks, you want to tell someone else about it. You want to respond back and serve the one that loves you like that. It pushes you past duty. You move way past raw duty. I guess I ought to do something for the king. Oh my goodness. When you have this awareness, it's like, how? How, What can I do? I want. I want to serve. I want. I love him. 
I love him. I want to live for him. I love him. I want to live for him. Paul says, watch out. Get out of either one of these ditches. The gospel brings you to a point in your life where you say, oh, oh my goodness. You mean I'm that bad? And at that same moment, oh, I'm that loved? Both. Tim Keller is fond of saying it this way. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's it. See, get this, folks. Humility is mentioned a lot in the Bible. It's something you want to get a hold of and work on for a lifetime. Pride is held up as something terrible. And humility is something wonderful to be cultivated and sought after for a lifetime. But we've got Christians that don't understand a true biblical definition of humility. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. I am so great, misses it. And I am so terrible, misses it. You, true biblical humility is when, when you get caught up in the tornado of delighting in your Savior and Christ, who he is and what he's done, and thinking about him, and meditating on him, and worshiping him, and talking to him every morning, and walking with him, and delighting in him. Oh my goodness, that tornado lifestyle spins off to the side, I am so great, and equally spins off to the side, I am so terrible, and leaves Christ center stage, and you breath and filled with gratitude, ready to serve him. That's the appropriate response. John Piper says this, it's a kind of self-forgetfulness produced by treasuring Christ. Thinking about ourselves will produce pride or despair. And both are forms of unbelief. The gospel alternative to pride is not mere self-condemnation, but Christ-exaltation. Let me give you the second pillar. So that's the first. That he's like, get this fastened in place. Get this in place. You are so loved, but God doesn't need you. It's not all about you. It's your privilege to serve out of love So get it fastened in place. But there's a second critical pillar he wants to fasten in place. This is it. Recognize that God never calls you to his son without also connecting you to his other children in a local church. You say, how in the world did you get that, Brad? Well, go with me back to verse 4 and 5. Romans 12 again, verse 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts then differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Do you see what Paul just did? Paul just took this box of spiritual supernatural gifts And dropped it right down in the middle of the tangled web we call the local church. 
He frames it up. That these gifts were never designed to be used in isolation outside of the local church. In fact, what he is saying is the local church is the hub. And you and your gift or gifts are simply spokes. And he intended for these spokes to be connected to a hub. Not in a, not in a generic, okay, I, know, I follow Jesus, me and Jesus and my Bible and great worship music and great sermons on my iPod that are so much better than the local church. And I'm part of the church universal. Uh-huh. When you read your Bible, every letter was written to a local church in Rome that had struggles. A church in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Thessalonica. Everything about the New Testament gives you a local church that had names like Phoebe and Sanctity that weren't getting along at VBS. It's real stuff. And all the letters were not written like, in general, as you're a part of the church universal. Folks, if we were just part of the church universal, you wouldn't have an opportunity to fight with another believer. Because you're all just doing home church. It's like, I just have people there that I like. My wife and best friends. And if it goes south, we just, that's that. It's local church, which is so much harder. I'm not here after 20 years because this has been so easy and you've all been so delightful. Hate to break that news to you. Remember over here? You're pretty bad. And so am I. So thank you for being so long-suffering with me, allowing me to be here. But folks, he places all this. It's not all about you and your gift just doing this thing as unto yourself. And yet, if someone today had written this, and there are people writing about spiritual gifts, oh my goodness, it, it would be so it would spin off into how can, you dis- how can you discover your gifts and become all that you can be and be a, a man or woman of God, an army of one. The Bible knows nothing about an army of one at all. The tone that you see from Paul brings it back to the local church as the hub and us and our gifts as spokes. And see, here's, here's what you really need to understand Because some of you now, I had you excited and you're like, oh, bummer. I was tracking with you until you went off like this, sweaty bald man. If it really is the church is the hub and I'm a spoke, I'm not sure I'm buying into this whole thing. Because I have stayed on the margins of church. I have reasons to be on the margin. I've been hurt. I've been disappointed. I've been, welcome to the club. Me too. Folks, on my worst days, I've been tempted as I fly back from somewhere and I've taught and then people stood in line to ask questions or even to say thank you. And I know I get on the plane and you're not my problem. That sounded like a big fat mess. I gave five minute wisdom and I'm flying out of here. On my worst days, I think conference speaker. Yes, I could fill my calendar with enough of these engagements to just stay busy and maybe maybe live in a cardboard box. The house is paid for. We don't have an expensive lifestyle. Maybe Maybe even write another book that has real royalties. I don't know. But I'll tell you what brings me back. Not a great day with you. The Bible. I read through the Bible every year and I just see, oh my goodness. God gives us no exit door on the local church. It's the church. And so I say, this is the hardest thing I could do. And it's also the place of greatest influence. And it is his bride. And here's the other thing. But you need to understand, there's something more important even than you or I discovering what our spiritual gifts are. We don't have time, but if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, he tells us whatever your gift is, no matter how amazing it is, 
if there's not what? Love. Love. It's just a clanging symbol. Now, some of you, this is going to be news for you. Where do you learn to love? The church is, local church is the incubator for you discovering and developing your spiritual gifts. And it's an incubator for love. Because, oh my goodness, look around. Like, who would have thought this was a good idea? Like, we're going to get along? Such dispersed, different economic statuses, educational statuses, skin color, places you grew up, family background, understanding of relationships. Oh my. But here's what happens. On a regular basis, you're faced with, am I going to prefer someone else? Will I forgive? Will I get bitter? Will I become demanding? Will I push? Will I shove? Will I wait? Will I be patient? Because those of you that are thinking, I'm sure you're saying like, oh my goodness, the local church, ah, they're just going to slow me down. And we're going to have to move forward so much more slowly for unity. And there's going to be differences and disagreements and preferences and hurts and messy. Yeah. And that's where love grows. Because apart from love, it doesn't matter how gifted or how amazing it is what God's enabled you to do. Without love, it's a clanging symbol. And so let me, let me give you another insight here about why God intends for you to plug into a local church regarding your spiritual gifts. OJT is the best way to discover your spiritual gifts. And by that, I mean on-the-job training, learning as you go, discovering as you serve. Folks, one of the very worst ways to discover anything is sitting still. And that includes your spiritual gifts. But some of you got it all backwards. You're that person that thinks, even if you don't say, well, I haven't started serving yet because I don't know what my gifts are. Let me help you. Try this. Start serving anywhere. Anywhere? Mm -hmm. Anywhere. Anywhere. Just start serving anywhere. And it's very likely in the process of serving that gifts that have lain dormant will rise to the surface. Now, let me give you a value add. That's real hot today, value add. What if I don't discover my gifts? Guess what the value add is. Even if you don't, you get to become more like your Savior. Folks, serving is one of the most life-changing things you could do as a believer. He never intended this to stay all academic. As you serve, it changes you. As you serve, you become more like your Savior. So there's the big bonus, whether you discover what your gifts are or not. But I really do believe you will. Much more likely than sitting still. But you'll become more like your Savior. You say, how do you know this, Brad? Well, two things. I've been a pastor now for 30 years and I have watched this happen for so many people over and over. And secondly, it's my own story. I grew up in the church. I was saved at seven. But at 19 or 20 years old, I had absolutely no idea what my spiritual gifts were because I'd never served. I was clueless. Clueless as to how God might have gifted me. But at age 19 or 20, my spiritual gifts were flushed out and I came alive. 
as I went to Columbia Bible College, and there's many things I appreciate about them, but one of them was, we're not going to do church right here on campus with all the students playing guitars and taking turns preaching. They required you within the end of the first semester. You had one semester to get your little Christian fanny in a local church. Not just spend your four years going to whoever had the best musical or whatever. You join a church and serve there in and through that church in the community. And then, to top it off, you're not just going to study theology and Christology and whatever. You were assigned different ministry tests. Whether you thought you were gifted or not, whether you were inclined or not, they didn't ask. My first semester there, I was assigned to do open-air Bible teaching in the housing projects in downtown Columbia, South Carolina. I could not have been more frightened or feel like throwing up or disinclined. Excuse me, I have no desire. Get on the van. Get in the van. We're loading up in little vans and going down there and spilling out like little albino ants roaming through, inviting. And and it's your job. I mean, how embarrassing. I'm supposed to teach a Bible lesson, but I got to find people who will come. You got to invite and listen to me. Scared? Yeah. Sick? Yeah. Would never have chosen to do this? Uh Uh-huh. But as I stood at this little wooden tripod easel with butcher paper, and this is like, you better know how to hold some attention, and you better keep it short. I got over that. (laughs) You chose to come. I know you want to be here, but I used to, I could be short. And you got to get right to the point. What is the main point? And as I did this, I loved it. I loved it. And my supervisor came to watch one week and said, hey, make an appointment with me this week. I want to talk to you. And I, I, I had no idea what it might be. I thought it might be rebuked. I, don't, I didn't know. That's how I'm sitting across from her and I still remember she said, Brad, I think you might have the gift of teaching. I was like, really? Because I had gone to Bible college having no idea what God wanted to do with me. None. So when she said that, I got in the Bible teaching track, started taking all the Bible teaching classes I could, and oh my goodness, my next assignment was to go on Sunday morning and do Sunday school for middle-aged, middle, middle school-aged juvenile delinquent boys at the Juvie Correctional Center. Again, a tough little crowd. They don't have to come, and those that do come just want it out of the room. So they're sitting there like, I dare you to interest me at all in this And I'm thinking, how do I teach the life of Moses to this? What's the takeaway? And I'm loving it. And my friend was leading children's church at my local church. And he said, Brad, help me. I'm the only one back here. It's like 30, 40, 50 kids. Help me. I had no inclination. I didn't wake up saying, I've got the gift of working with kids. I've got a friend asking. But I get in there and I start playing my guitar. I start working with the kids. I fall in love. I love it. A friend of mine had been serving on a leadership committee that plans out a student-led missions conference every year. He's graduating. He's stepping off. He says, Brad, get on the committee. Be a part of this. I'm like, no, I have no desire to organize anything, lead anything, plan anything. But he's my friend. So I said, okay. And as we, it was called Go 84. Because was that happening in 1984? (laughs) Yes, I was alive then. 
And as I did that, served on that committee for that year, oh my goodness, where you have to think, if that's where we're going, that's the end game. We need speakers, we need a facility, we need sound system, we need food. What are we going to teach? We need workbooks, notebooks, handouts. I loved it. Breaking it down, saying if that's where we're going, then these are the steps to get there. And here's when we'd have to do it and how we'd have to do it. And I loved leading and organizing. And then the school challenged us to give sacrificially, like trust God, big kind of giving. I don't see it. I don't know how this would happen. I'd grown up in the church and been taught to tithe. So I had always given 10% of whatever I made from babysitting to whatever. But I never thought of giving more wasn't on my radar at all. And for the first time, and I was that guy that had no money. I came just barely able to pay my tuition and no money for books. And I had to trust God every semester for books. And I worked in the snack bar cooking hamburgers on Friday and Saturday because I had no car. So I'm not going anywhere fun, doing anything with other people. Don't feel bad for me. And I'm, I'm making money for books. And I still thought, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to give something. I don't know how, but I'm gonna, I prayed. He gave me an amount. And I watched God provide and it lit a fire in me that has never stopped. I couldn't give away enough stuff. If it wasn't fastened down, I gave it away. I had no money, so I was just giving stuff. Here's my coat. Here's my Bible. Here's my bicycle. I'm just giving away stuff. And then I decided to take on a missionary in India for $40 a month, even though I got no money for books, and see what God would do. And I'll tell you what God did. He provided the $40 I needed for the missionary in India every month. And it lit a fire in me, you guys, that I started thinking, if one day I was to actually have money, real money, I would love to give away tons of money. Folks, that happened when I was 19 or 20 so that I was already thinking, and here I have real money, but I've kept the same house. I drive used cars so that my margin, now I'm able to give away large amounts of money. But I was doing it when I didn't have money. That's where I tasted it. That's where thing, traction kicked in. I still remember my parents coming my senior year. And they brought me a green 1971 Buick Skylark. Now let me help you. I wasn't so old that that was a nice car. That was not. No one wanted to be seen in that. But I was happy to have a car. Because Uncle Cute, my Uncle Cute, was a used car salesman in Chattanooga. And he picked it out. Thank you, Uncle Cute. But my mom, I still remember, as she handed me the keys there on campus, she looked at me and she said, Bradley, we are giving you, as our son, this car. Do not give it away. Do you understand me? Do not give it away. She'd already been really upset with me. I didn't keep anything. Like, the winter coat was for you, baby love. No, no, I give it away. This other man needed it. She's like, if you decide to give it away, give it back to us, okay? We want you to have it or we want it back. Folks... I've never looked back. Teaching, leading, giving. And it all happened, OJT, as I just said yes and stepped in, unaware of any giftedness or inclination. But it happened. Oh, I get so excited when I think about hundreds of you that that could happen. You have gifts. Some of you have an amazing gift for loving kids and connecting with kids and, and teaching kids. You just don't know it yet because you've never said yes. Some of you have the gift of giving and you keep waiting for money. Let me help you. Start stretching and giving sacrificially. Because here's what I also believe. As God looked, again, I'm not a perfect person. You know that if you've been here a while. 
But I believe as God looked at Brad Bigney and saw how he does not keep all of it for himself, he's continued to give Brad Bigney more money. Because he knows it won't stay with Brad Bigney. If I give Brad Bigney money, it will not stay with Brad Bigney. He gives away so much of it. Some of you keep saying, I don't have much money. Give away some more. Again, not as a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Not as a formula. But when he just sees your heart, I want to do these things, God. Some of you have a gift of helps, mercy, exhortation. These are things that happen at close range in relationship with other believers. And the reason you don't know know you have these gifts is you haven't gotten in a small group with believers at close range. Two of the best things you could do. Please don't go online and try to find a gift assessments test. You don't need to sit with some number two pencil and color in little circles. Two of the best things you could do. Just start serving. Where? Anywhere was the answer. Anywhere. 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 I mean, anywhere they'll let you. If you're tone deaf, you ain't getting up here on the worship team. And they'll... He will graciously let you know that. He's really diplomatic. And the children's, there's some paperwork to fill out to make sure you're not a mass murderer or some wacko. But in general, there's a lot of things that you can just do. Do immediately. Begin to serve anywhere and get in a small group with believers at close range and watch what might start to happen. You're like, I still remember how excited I got as I realized, I think God's gifted me. I'm excited for you guys. I'm excited for some of you to experience that. There have been some of you hanging on the edges and the margins saying, I don't know what my gifts are. Oh, this could be the year that you find out OJT on the job training as you serve, as you give. And oh, by the way, even if you don't end up saying, oh, these are my gifts for sure, you'll have the joy of becoming more like, say it, Jesus. 